Chapter One of Stories of the Ships. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Stories of the Ships by Lewis Ransom Freeman. Section One The Story of the Cornwall Plymouth to the Falklands of the countless stories of naval action which i have listened to in the course of the months i have spent with the grand fleet i cannot recall a single one which was told as the consequence of being asked for with malice aforethought i have never yet found a man of action who was enamoured of the sound of his own voice raised in the recital of his own exploits and if there is one thing more than another calculated to throw an otherwise not untalkative british naval officer into a state of uncommunicativeness in comparison with which the traditional silence of the sphinx or the proverbial close-mouthedness of the clam are alike sheer garrulity it is uh, to ask him point-blank to tell you for instance how he took his submarine into the baltic or what his destroyer did at jutland or how he fought his cruiser at dogger bank or something similar the quiet voiced but always interesting and often dramatic recitals of such things as these which i have heard have invariably been led up to quite incidentally at dinner on the bridge or quarter-deck around the wardroom fire or through something else that has just been told several times i have found in officers diaries little records never meant for other eyes than those of the writer's own friends or families which have been turned over to me to verify some point regarding which i had inquired laconic references to incidents and events of great human and even historic interest and one of the most amusing and dramatic yarns i have ever listened to was told me in a kite balloon plunging in the forty-mile wind against which it was being towed like a hooked salmon by a man who had assured me before we went up that nothing really exciting had ever fallen to his experience it was in this way an anecdote now and then as this or that incident of the day recalled it to his mind that captain blank came to tell me the story of the cornwall during those eventful early months of the war when he commanded that now famous cruiser he mentioned her first i believe one night in his cabin when referring to a stormy midwinter month most of which had been spent by his division of the grand fleet on some part of work at sea i spoke of the rather strenuous interval we had experienced if you think life in a battleship of the grand fleet strenuous laughed the captain extending himself comfortably in his armchair before the glowing grate i wonder what you would have thought of the life we led in the old cornwall not very far from a hundred and twenty thousand miles of steaming was her record for the first two years of the war and in that time she ploughed most of the seven seas and coasted in the waters of all but one of the six continents always on the lookout for something or other coaling as we could provisioning as we might let me tell you that coming to the grand fleet after that at least until a few months had elapsed and the contrast wore off was like retiring on a pension in comparison 
he settled himself deeper into the soft upholstery extended his feet nearer the fire lighted a fresh cigar and in the hour which elapsed before the evening mail came aboard told me of the work of the cornwall in those first chaotic weeks of the war which preceded the battle of the falklands we were at plymouth when the war began said he and our first work was in connection with protecting and shepherding safely to port several british ships carrying bullion which were still on the high seas it was a baffling sort of a job especially as there were two or three german raiders loose in the north atlantic the favourite ruse of each of which was to represent itself as a british cruiser engaged in the same benevolent work the cornwall was on warned of these wolves in shepherd's clothing the merchantmen we sought to protect were afraid to reveal their whereabouts by wireless the consequence being that our first forerunning efforts to safeguard the seas resolved themselves into a sort of marine combination of blind man's buff and hide-and-seek played pretty well all over the atlantic all the ships with especially valuable cargoes got safely to port ultimately though none of them that i recall directly under the wing of the cornwall it was our first taste of the so near and yet so far kind of life that is the inevitable lot of the cruiser which essays the dual row of commerce protector and raider chaser after a few hours at jib uh, we were next sent across to casablanca where the appearance of the cornwall was about the first tangible evidence that french africa had of the fact that england was really coming into the war in earnest there was a good deal of unrest in morocco at the time for the germans were even then at work upon their insidious propaganda among the moslems of all the colonies of the allies the buzz in the bazaars that the appearance of a british warship started must have served a very useful purpose at this critical juncture in carrying to the arabs of the interior word that france was not going to have to stand alone against germany our reception by both the french and native population of casablanca was most enthusiastic and during all of our stay a cheering procession followed in the wake of every party of officers or men who went ashore leaving casablanca we were sent back to the atlantic to search for commerce destroyers ultimately working south by the canaries and cape verde islands to south american waters where the Karlsruhe was then at the zenith of her activities the chase of this enterprising and elusive raider whose career was finally brought to an inglorious end by her going aground on a west indian island kept the cornwall along with a number of other british cruisers steadily on the move until the ominous and painful news of the destruction of craddock's fleet off coronel suddenly brought us face to face with the fact that there was soon going to be bigger game than a lone pirate to be stalked we never had the luck to sight even so much as the smoke of the Karlsruhe although as i only learned too late to take advantage of the information the cornwall was within an hour or two steaming of her on one occasion i did think we had her once though a jolly amusing incident it was too i was getting uncomfortably short of food at the time a very common experience in the here to-day and gone to-morrow sort of life we were leading 
so that when the welcome news reached me by wireless one morning that a british ship buenos aires to new york with frozen beef was due to pass through the waters we were then patrolling i lost no time in heading over to intercept her on the chance of doing a bit of marketing we picked her up promptly as reckoned but while she was still hull down on the horizon her skipper began to signal frantically i am being chased by the Karlsruhe." here was luck indeed i ordered action stations to be sounded and the course of the ship to be altered toward the point where i figured the smoke of the pursuing pirate would begin to smudge the skyline as she came swooping down upon her fray sighting nothing after holding on this course for a while i came to the conclusion that the raider must be hidden by the impenetrable smoke pall with which the flying beef ship had masked a wide arc of the western horizon and headed up in that direction begging the fugitive in the meantime to give me the bearing of her pursuer as accurately as possible her only reply to this, however, was to belch out smokescreen faster than ever and continue rending the Empyrean ether with renewed, I'm being chased by the Karlsruhe. In vain, I assured her that we were the HMS Cornwall and would take the greatest delight in seeing that the chase was put to an end if she would only tell us from which direction the Karlsruhe was coming and cease to throw out a bituminous blanket for the enemy to hide behind. Blacker and blacker rolled the smoke, heavier and heavier piled the screen to leeward, and still more frantically shrilled the appeals for help at the end of my patience at actions which it now began to dawn upon me looked more than a little suspicious i headed the cornwall straight after the runaway and soon reduced the interval separating us sufficiently to reach her with visual she brought up sharp at my stop instantly and a quarter of an hour later my boarding party was clambering over her side where's the Karlsruhe? i shouted impatiently to the boarding officer as his boat came back alongside again i knew something of the accuracy of german long-range naval gunnery and was far from being easy in mind regarding the kind of surprise packet that might at any moment be wafted out of that slowly thinning smoke blur to leeward there he replied with a comprehensive sweep of the arm in quite the opposite direction from the one i had been expecting the enemy right there sir that old lunatic of a skipper thought the cornwall was the Karlsruhe. did you get your frozen beef i asked the captain smiled the pleased smile of one who recalls something that has given him great satisfaction i think that afternoon marked the beginning of the food economy campaign in the navy he replied if the admiralty had been able to continue buying frozen beef at the rate that crestfallen but highly relieved skipper quite of his own free will charged for the lot we loaded up after he had found it was not to be his fate to be sunk by the Karlsruhe well the government could have probably built a new battleship or two and never missed the money out of the savings the recollection of the treat that fresh meat was after a long period on bully beef ration turned the captain's thought to another time of plenty he had experienced after the cornwall had helped the wounded carmania limp back to base following her successful engagement with the cap trafalgar 
in these times of food economy and restricted rations he said it fairly makes my mouth water to think of the feast captain g spread for us during the days we were devising a way to get the battered carmania back to england you see when the war started she was just about to sail on one of her transatlantic voyages with the usual midsummer cargo of american millionaires and her cuisine was of a character calculated to satisfy their epicurean tastes when they converted her to an auxiliary cruiser it was the usual sledge-hammer crowbar and over-the-side procedure with the mirrors the upholsteries and the mahoganies but they kept the stores god bless em they left the stores can you fancy how things such as truffled quail and asparagus tips with mayonnaise iced and cafe parfait and muscat dates and california oranges with the big gold labels on tasted to men who had been for weeks pretty nearly down to the basic old windjammer ration of lobscous and dog's body and those plump black five-inch long havanas in the silver foil i can smell the soothing fumes of them yet and that rarely blended mocha and those bottles of eighteen thirty five cognac the pungent bouquet of them since the memories of the long evenings i sat with g in the wreck of his fire-swept cabin while he yarned to me of the ripping fight he had come out of and how we all envied g his luck getting as sporting a show as a man could ask for in that half-converted liner while we cruisers were vainly chasing smoke and rumors over most of the south atlantic nothing less than the banquets he gave us would have salved our heart-burnings and so it was that the captain was led on to speak of what he had heard from those who took part in it and only a few hours from the time it happened of the first great duel ever fought between modern armed merchantmen a conflict indeed which is still practically unique in naval history there was not much to choose between the ships he said the cap trafalgar one of the latest of the hamburg sud america liners had a good deal the best of it on the score of age and the Carmania probably something on the score of size the latter had been hastily converted at liverpool immediately after the outbreak of the war while the former turned herself from sheep into wolf about the same time by arming herself with the guns of a small german gunboat this craft by the way steamed to the nearest brazilian port and with true hunnish logic claimed the right to intern as a peaceful german merchantman on the strength of the fact that it was no longer armed the largest guns that either ship had were four-inch the carmania having slight advantage on the score of number the carmania would have been no match for the Karlsruhe, just as the captafalgar would have fallen easy prey to the cornwall or another of the british cruisers in those waters under the circumstances it was a happy fatality that let these two ex-floating palaces fight with each other and in their own class the first word we had of the engagement was a wireless captain g sent out saying in effect that he had sunk the trafalgar 
but as his bridge was burned up his steering gear shot away and all his navigating instruments destroyed that he would be glad to have someone come and tell him where he was and lead him to a place where he could so to speak lie down and lick his wounds for a while it took a jolly good bit of searching to find a ship that couldn't tell any more about itself than that but we finally sighted her ragged silhouette and gave her a lead to such a haven as the practically open seas of our rendezvous afforded poor g had lost a good deal more than his steering gear it soon transpired for the fire which had consumed his bridge had also gutted his cabin and reduced everything in it to cinders except an old norfolk jacket how that escaped we never could figure out for of garments hanging on pegs to the left and right of it no trace was left as g was of about three times the girth of any other british officer in those waters at the time the wardrobe we tried to get together for him was a grotesque combination indeed as far as i recall now the old norfolk had to serve him as everything from pyjamas and bathrobe to dinner jacket and greatcoat during that trying period it was a weird figure he cut presiding at those gargantuan feasts he spread for us on the bruised and battered old carmania but there wasn't a one of us who wouldn't have changed places with him norfolk and all for the assurance of half his luck such is the monotony of this patrol work in the outer seas that after your first enthusiasm wears off you get into a state of mind in which you can never conceive that anything is ever going to happen that we had the one most decisive naval battle of the war just ahead of us no one dreamed at this time the fight between the Comania and the cap trafalgar he continued has well been called the battle of the haystacks for never before or since for that matter have two ships with such towering upper works stood off and tried to batter each other to pieces with gunfire indeed i well recall g saying that up to the very end he could not conceive that either ship could sink the other and of how even after the carmania had been struck three or four score times and a raging fire forward had driven him from the bridge he kept wondering in the back of his brain what sort of a fight the duel would resolve itself into when both had exhausted their shells luckily he did not have to face that problem both ships according to g s account began blazing at each other as soon as they came in range and as each was eager to fight it out to a finish the distance separating them was for a while reduced as rapidly as possible at something like three thousand yards however some sort of a rapid-fire gun burst into action on the trafalgar it didn't appear to be doing me much harm said g in telling of it but the incessant pom-pom of the accursed thing got so much on my nerves that i drew off far enough to dull the edge of its infernal yapping a thing which came near to putting the carmania out of the running before she had completed the polishing off of her opponent was the shell which i have spoken of as violating the sanctity of the captain's cabin the one that burned everything but the norfolk jacket this projectile a four-inch though probably owing to the small resistance offered by the light upper works it did not explode generated enough heat in its passage to start a fire 
beginning on g's personal effects this conflagration spread to the bridge destroying the navigating instruments and ultimately making it impossible to remain there the latter a serious blow in itself what made this fire especially troublesome was the difficulty because of the cutting of the main of bringing water to bear upon it as it was it was necessary to head the carmania down the wind to reduce the draught fanning the flames nothing else would have saved her except for one thing this expedient would have enabled the now thoroughly worsted though g didn't know it trafalgar to withdraw from the action and this was that the latter was herself on fire and had to take the same course willy-nilly from that moment on the battle was irretrievably joined as one of those old spanish knife duels in which the opponents were locked together in a room to fight to a finish often as not so they say the victor in one of these fights only survived the loser by minutes or hours and so would it have been in this instance had they not finally been able to extinguish the fire on the carmania g's account of the way he had to carry on after being driven from the bridge it was really a splendid bit of seamanship was funny in the extreme but the reality must have been funnier still that is if that term can be applied to anything happening while shells are bursting and blowing men to bits every few seconds g is one of the biggest men in the navy around the waist i mean so it wasn't to be expected of him to be very shifty on his feet and yet by the irony of fate it was he of all men who was suddenly confronted with a task that required only less footwork than it did headwork with the battle going on all the time they rigged up some sort of a jury steering gear or it may be that they steered her by her screws at any rate g had to con her from the most commanding position he could find on one of the after decks or rather as he had no longer voice-pipe communication with the engine-room he had to keep dashing back and forth it must have been for all the world like a batsman running in cricket between two or three commanding positions if i wanted to open the range a bit he said i had to nip forward wait till there was an interval in both gunfire and shell burst and yell down a hatchway or was it a ventilator to the engine-room to slow port or if i suddenly found it imperative to open the distance i had to make the same journey and pass the word down to stop starboard the very thought of that mad shuttling back and forth under the equatorial sun used to make poor g mop his forehead and pour himself a fresh drink every time he told the story battered and burning fiercely as both ships were g confessed that even at this juncture he could not rid himself of the feeling that neither of them had enough shells to sink the other i was racking my brain for some plan of action to follow when that moment arrived he said when suddenly the trafalgar began to heel sharply and started to sink it was our second or third salvo which had holed her badly at the water-line that did the business she had kept steaming and fighting for close to an hour and a quarter afterwards though g told us one very good story about his gunnery officer it was just before the shell which started the fire struck us he said that wise sun helmet was knocked off i don't remember whether it was by the wind or the concussion of the firing 
seeing it fall to the deck below he ran to the rail of the bridge and began shouting for someone to bring it back to him before long luckily a seaman who had heard the shouting in a lull of the firing poked his head out to see what it was about and presently came puffing up the ladder with the fugitive headpiece i say luckily because the gun control for the whole ship was suspended while y waited for that infernal helmet and the funniest thing about it was that when i ventured to suggest a few days later that it might be well if he made use of the chin-strap of his helmet the next time he was in action he claimed to have no recollection whatever of the incident thought he had been sticking to his guns all the time just shows how a man's brain works in airtight compartments when he is really busy the surgeon of the carmania continued the captain a splendid chap who had given up a lucrative west end practice and sworn he was under forty although he was really fifty-two in order to get a chance to do something for his country told me many stories to prove the splendid spirit of the men that passed under his hands during and after the fight though most of the crew were only royal naval reservists with no experience of and but little training for fighting it appears that they stood what is perhaps the hardest of all trials that of seeing their mates wounded and killed beside them like seasoned veterans there was one stout-hearted young cockney said the surgeon whom after i had finished removing a number of shell fragments from various parts of his anatomy i asked what he thought of the fight rippin sir he replied grinning ecstatically through the bandage that held up the flap of a torn cheek rippin never been in one like it before then as his eye caught the smile which i could not quite repress at the lifetime of naval battling suggested by that never before he concluded with it not even in whitechapel the surgeon came across one man who insisted that the blood flowing from a ragged tear in his arm was really spattered there when one of his mates whose mangled body he bestrode had been decapitated by a shell a few minutes before and there was one lot of youngsters who went on cheerily yo-heave-hoeing in hoisting some badly needed shells which were so slippery with blood that they had to be sanded before they could be handled grimly pathetic was the story he told me of a gunner whose torn hand he had just finished amputating and bandaging when someone shouted into the door of the dressing station that the trafalgar was going down he crowded to a port i had had opened said the surgeon just in time to see one of the last salvos from the carmania go crashing into the side of the healing enemy hurrah boys he shouted give em beans and as he cheered he started what had evidently been a favourite gesture of approval and excitement with him to smite mightily with his right fist into the palm of his left hand but that blow fell upon air there was no answering thwack the gnarled weather-beaten fist shot past a bandaged stump he drew back with surprise for a moment and then grinning a bit sheepishly like a boy surprised in some foolish action edged back beside me at the port quite forgot there was something missin he said half apologetically trying to wriggle the elbow of the maimed arm back into the sling from which it had slipped suppose i'll be having to get used to it won't i 
as the trafalgar took a new list and began rapidly to settle he burst into renewed aurors by god sir he cried when she had finally gone if i'd had as many ands as an octopus i'd a given em all for the joy of puttin that blinkin pyrite down to davy jones the captain gazed long at the coals of the grate on his face the pleased smile of one who recalls treasured memories i can't tell you how sorry we were to see the carmania go he said finally my word how we did enjoy those feasts good old g spread for us with a laugh he roused himself from the pleasant reverie and took up again the narrative of the cornwall the first intimation we had he resumed of the sinking of admiral craddock's fleet came in the form of a wireless from the defence asking if i had heard of the disaster at coronel details which came in the course of the next day or two brought home to us the astonishing change in the whole situation which the appearance of von spey in south american waters had wrought the blow fell like a bolt from the blue as rapidly as possible the various british warships in the south atlantic rendezvoused off montevideo to discuss a plan of action what the next move of the victorious von spey would be we could only surmise german prisoners picked up after the falklands battle said his ultimate plan after seizing port stanley for a base and undergoing such a refit there as was practicable with the means at his disposal was to scatter his ships as commerce raiders all over the atlantic cutting if possible the main sea arteries of england to north america the germans figured according to these prisoners that the suspension of the north atlantic traffic for even a month no impossible thing for five speedy cruisers in the light of the delays to sailings caused by the emden and Karlsruhe working alone would practically paralyze england's war effort and reduce her military effort in france to almost negligible proportions i am much more inclined to believe that this rather than escorting a fleet of german merchantmen bearing german reservists from argentina uruguay and southern brazil to southwest africa from buenos aires and montevideo was the real plan of von spey however it was the immediate rather than the ultimate plans of the germans that was our chief in fact our only concern whether von spey intended heading for the north atlantic later or south africa or up the thames the only way he could clear the road to any of these objectives was by first destroying such british warships as still remained in south american waters it was these ships which had hurried to get together off montevideo in order to make the path of the enemy as thorny and full of pitfalls as possible they had no illusions respecting what the immediate future held for them that little group of cruiser captains that gathered in the admiral's cabin of the defence to formulate a plan of action we knew nothing at that time of what had been decided upon at the admiralty indeed we were quite in agreement that it would be deemed inexpedient to send any battle-cruisers away from the north sea where they might be imperatively needed any day on a voyage to the south atlantic that might easily resolve itself into a months-long wild goose-chase our plans therefore were laid entirely on the assumption that we should have to do the best we could with the ships already available 
there was not a man of us who was not keen on the chance of a fight at even the prohibitive odds under which it appeared inevitable that the one ahead of us must be fought but the prospects of success were anything but alluring every day that passed had brought reports revealing the completeness of the enemy's victory at coronel and all of these were more than confirmed when the glasgow whose captain had had the good sense to retire from a battle in which there was no longer a chance for him to be of any use came in and joined us it would be easy to suggest conditions under which one naval force faced by another as much stronger than itself as the germans were than the british at this time would be justified in avoiding an action the present was not such an occasion however in fact i don't think it ever occurred to any of us to bring up a discussion of that phase of the question at all this briefly was the way the matter presented itself to us the measure of the power of the germans to inflict harm to the allies was their supply of shells these gone always provided no new supply reached them the menace even though the ships were yet unsunk was practically at an end we knew that they had already used up a considerable quantity of their ammunition in a foolish bombardment of the little tropical port of papiti in the french societies and we knew that a very large amount had been expended at coronel they still probably had enough we figured to see them through many months of commerce raiding if only they could avoid another general action against warships and such an action even if it was a losing one from our standpoint it was our manifest role to provoke and at the earliest possible moment this point decided about all that remained to be considered was how to make the most effective disposition of such ships as we had at our disposal when once the enemy was in sight we knew just what ships we would have to meet we also knew practically to a gun how they were armed moreover with coronel as an object lesson we knew how well those ships were handled and with what deadly effectiveness those guns were served now that it is all ancient history i think there is no reason why i should not tell you how we arranged that our ships should take partners for the little sea dance they were expecting to shake their heels at the defence an armoured cruiser of the minotaur type subsequently sunk at jutland was to tackle the Sharnhorse, von spee's flagship the former was the only ship we had that was anywhere near a match for either of the larger german cruisers she exceeded them in displacement by several thousand tons and her four nine point twos and ten seven point fives had a comfortable margin of metal over that fired from the Sharnhorst's eight eight point twos and six five point nines in a fair duel with either of the larger germans i think there is little doubt she would have had the best of it in the battle we expected to go into however there could be no certainty that she was going to be able to give her undivided attention to the vis-a-vis -vis we had picked for her during a sufficient interval to finish up the job the carnarvon and the cornwall were to be given the formidable task of keeping the Nisnau so busy that she could not help her sister fight the defence our combined displacement was about equal to that of our prospective opponent but the four seven point fives and twenty six inch 
all we had between us could hardly have prevented her pounding us to pieces with her eight point twos in the event that she elected to use her speed to keep beyond the effective range of our lighter guns by dashing into close range we might have had a chance with her or again there was the possibility we might lead her a dance that would take her out of the way long enough to give the defence time to finish polishing off the sharnhorst in which event the former might have been able to intervene in our favour small as would have been our chance of carrying through our part of the programme successfully the night now was the one appointed i desired above all the others on account of the way i knew it would buck up the ship's company to feel that we were having a whack at the ship that sunk the monmouth there was a good many men in the monmouth who had gone to her from the cornwall and our men never tired cursing the hun for letting their mates drown at coronel without making any effort to save them they had something to say on that score when their turn came at the falklands the glasgow we were going to give a chance to wipe out her coronel score by sending her in against the nuremberg with her superior speed and her two six-inch and ten four-inch guns against the latter's ten four-point-ones she would probably have had the best of what could not but have been a very pretty fight if no one had interfered with it here again unluckily the chances were against a duel to the finish against the dresden a very worthy sister of the amden the very best we could muster was the armed merchantman orama this unless another armed merchantman the otranto which had escaped with the glasgow from coronel became available left us nothing to oppose to the leipzig which in that event would have been a sort of a rover free to bestow her attention and shells wherever they appeared likely to do the most harm and from the way she was fought at the falklands where she was my opposite number let me tell you that a jolly troublesome rover she would have been that in a few words was our little plan for making von spee use up the remainder of his ammunition that was our principal object and there can be no doubt that we would have come pretty near complete success in attaining it for the rest you can judge for yourself what our chances would have been as the fates would have it however that battle was never to be fought save on paper in the admiral's cabin of the old defence before ever we had completed preparations for our magazine-emptying sally against von spee word was winged to us that the admiralty had a plan of its own in process of incubation and that we were to stand by to cooperate sturdy and his battle-cruisers were well on their way to the south atlantic however before even an inkling of what was afoot was vouchsafed us and even then my orders were simply to rendezvous with him at the base i have spoken of before the one where we foregathered and feasted with the carmania i breathed no word of where and why we were going until the muddy waters of the platte estuary were left behind and the last least possibility of a leak to the shore was out of the question then i simply passed it on to the men by posting some word of it on the notice-board there was no cheering either then or even a few days later when the inflexible and the invincible the latter flying admiral sturdy's flag came nosing in from the atlantic and dropped anchor at the base 
but the promise of action in the immediate future was like wine to the men they were simply tumbling over themselves to carry out the most ordinary routine duties and so it continued right up to the moment that von spee's foretops gliding along above the low promontory of port william brought them to action stations with real work to do at last sturdy had his plans all laid and we repaired to the invincible shortly after her arrival to familiarize ourselves with them all in all it wasn't so very different a gathering as that one which took place on the defence off montevideo to plan another battle the one which was never to take place i don't mind admitting though that there was a bit more buoyancy to the atmosphere of this second conference the natural consequence of our improved prospects there is no use denying that it gives a man a more comfortable feeling to know that he is in a ship that has reasonable expectations of sending its opposite to the bottom of the sea than to be faced with the prospect of going out as a sort of animated lure to wheedle the enemy out of his shells with the invincible and inflexible sturdy had sufficient force to be able to dispense with the defence which was i believe sent to african water to join a force that was gathering there on the off chance that the germans slipped through the net that was being flung off south america for scouting purposes the bristol and the kent both of which had foregathered with us at the base were added to our punitive expedition which finally got under way for the falklands on november twenty eighth steaming in a formation best calculated to sweep a wide range of seas we held our southerly course for nine days sighting so far as i recall no ship of any description except those of our own force on the eighth day we weathered a heavy blizzard but it was out of a clear dawn that the low rounded hills of the falklands so suggestive in many respects of the orkneys and the north of scotland took shape the following morning we dropped anchor in the double harbour of port william and port stanley at nine o'clock of the forenoon of december seven before another twenty-four hours had passed von spee hurrying as though to a rendezvous had made his appearance and we were raising steam to go out and even up the craddock's account with him End of section one.